Welcome, welcome. You are listening to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. And I am your co-host, Austin. And he's a little under the weather, so if he sounds a little congested, it's because he is. I have a cold. Yeah, it's not COVID, probably. It's a cold. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us. And before we get started, I want to let you know that we finished our giveaway. We had a winner. Her name is Maddie. We Venmoed her the 5,000 cents. She's a real person. And uh, yeah, so thank you so much to everyone who left us reviews and participated in that giveaway. We really appreciate it. It helps grow our audience. So thank you, thank you, thank you for reviewing. We'll probably do another one soon. Keep the reviews coming if you would. You yeah. know, if you're listening right now, we'd love for you to go review it after this episode if you like it. And if you didn't, then don't. <laughs> then just don't leave one at all, <laughs> please. That's right. So today... Happy Monday, everybody. We hope you had a good Christmas. Monday, yes. We didn't have an episode on Friday because it was Christmas. So we hung out with our families and, man, it flew by. Christmas flew by. Flies by. Yeah. I hope everyone had a beautiful Christmas and that you got to spend time with your families and if you didn't, like me, we spent time with Austin's family, which was super nice, but we didn't get to see mine. So, like, we got a taste of both sides. So, those of you who got to see family, that's great. I'm happy for you. Those of you who didn't, I feel for you. So, yeah. Let's hop right in, Kelly. You ready? We are talking about the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. Uh-oh. What do you know about the Night Stalker, Austin? I know absolutely nothing. Diddly squat. Diddly squat. Diddly. Diddly squat. So fair warning, the subject matter in this story is incredibly disturbing. There will be discussion of violence, drug use, rape, and torture. I realize some of these topics may be triggering, so I wanted to give a fair warning before we get started. So I started researching this story a few weeks ago because it was one I'd heard of before but never actually knew the details of. I had just heard the term the Night Stalker before, but I didn't know who that was or like what he did. To be honest, the only reference I'd heard was in the movie Joe Dirt, oddly enough. In the movie, this guy with a mullet named Joe Dirt is looking for his family, and he goes to a sketch artist to come up with a sketch of his mom, and the sketch artist ends up drawing a portrait of the Night Stalker with, like, the little pentagram on his hand. Do you remember that part? I've never seen Joe Dirt. i just seen the guy with the mullet oh. and the mop. Well, anyway, it was all based on Joe's description, so it was, like, a funny moment in the movie, but once I started researching this case, I realized just how serious and terrifying the Night Stalker really was, and... This all happened a long time ago, so um, maybe some of the, what am I trying to say? Like, it's more nostalgic now is what I'm trying to say. Um, But oddly enough, after I started researching it, I saw that Netflix is coming out with a docu-series on The Night Stalker. So I'm eager to see that, but it doesn't come out until January 13th. So Interesting. So today, we are going to go over his reign of terror. This all occurred during just the summer of 1985. It was the summer of 85. So at times, it's hard to imagine how he continued to get away with this over and over. But we have to remember that we didn't have the rapid access to forensic science that we have now. And the list of his crimes is very long. And what blew me away was how different his crimes were. Like, he didn't have any kind of common interest. His victims ranged from young to old, male to female. There was, like, no real pattern, which made him even harder to find and made him even more, I don't know, I guess... Sporadic and weird. Yeah, extraordinary. Like, he's this big-time serial killer. Um, It's pretty crazy. So, you ready? I'm ready. Let's dive right in. Let's just... I was born ready. Cool. Richard... 
Leva Munoz Ramirez, it's a long name, was born in 1960, and he was one of five children. He was born in El Paso, Texas, where his father, Julian, who used to be a police officer in Mexico, worked on the Santa Fe Railroad. His father was a very hardworking man, but he had a dangerous temper. He physically abused his wife and children. At two years old, Richard was struck in the head with a piece of furniture, and it cut a huge gash on his forehead. And then when he was five, he was struck again by a swing at school, and he was knocked unconscious. So since then, he claims he suffered from seizures, and it's apparent that he likely suffered a head injury at the time. Um, And this is such a common thread when we talk about serial killers and just psychopaths. They typically have some sort of head trauma earlier in life. And really bad upbringings. Yes, exactly. Yep. So growing up, Richard spent a lot of his time with his much older cousin, Miguel Ramirez. Miguel was a war-hardened Army Green Beret veteran who likely suffered from some serious PTSD and would tell Richard some of his war stories from the Vietnam War. He also told Richard about some of the rapes he committed and even showed Richard a Polaroid photo of the severed head from one of the victims he raped and killed. Richard was 10 years old. Miguel taught Richard some of his skills like how to kill people and how to capture people. He also introduced Richard to marijuana so they would bond over war stories and rolling joints. Eventually, Richard tried to seek escape from his father's violent temper, so he began sleeping in a local cemetery. According to some of his childhood friends, Richard never brushed his teeth, and his friends would tell him to either close his mouth or brush his teeth. As a teenager, he would shoplift junk food and drink tons of Coca-Cola, which caused his teeth to start decaying at a really young age. On May 4th, 1973, Miguel and his wife got into a heated argument, and Miguel ended up shooting his wife in the face right in front of Richard. Miguel was arrested and went to trial, but was found not guilty by reason of insanity and spent four years in a state hospital. Such BS. Yeah. After this incident, Richard became pretty withdrawn and moved in with his sister, Ruth. Richard moves in with his sister and her husband, Roberto. Roberto would take Richard with him at night to peep through women's windows. It was also around this time that Richard began using LSD and cultivated an interest in Satanism. In his late teens, Richard began working at a Holiday Inn while he was going to school. He would use his passkey to enter guests' hotel rooms and rob them. One night, however, he used his key to get into a room and tried to rape the woman in there, but the woman's husband walked in and caught them. He tackled Richard and got him off his wife and pretty much beat the shit out of him. The couple pressed charges, but then later dropped the charges because the couple who lived out of state didn't want to have to travel back to testify. Richard ended up losing his job and dropped out of high school. Fast forward to age 22, Richard moves from Texas to California. He went to a San Francisco, or I'm sorry, he went to San Francisco, and on April 10th, 1984, he ends up murdering what we know was his first victim, a nine-year-old girl in the basement of the hotel where he was living. However, this case remained unsolved all the way up until 2009, when they finally got a DNA match from him. But also, in 2016, officials disloca- or, I'm sorry, disclosed evidence of a second suspect who was believed to be present at the murder, but this person hasn't faced any charges. 
So this crime would essentially jumpstart Richard's reign of terror. On June 28, 1984, Jenny Vinco was found brutally murdered in her apartment in L.A. She had been stabbed repeatedly while she slept in her bed, and her throat was cut so severely that she was almost decapitated. Richard's fingerprint was found on a mesh screen that he moved to gain access through an open window. On March 17th, the following year, he attacked Maria Hernandez outside her home, shooting her in the face as she pulled into her garage. She survived with the bullet when the bullet ricocheted off the keys that she held in her hand. No way. Yeah, as she lifted them to protect herself. Are these just random people that he's encountering? These are completely random. So he literally just drove up, saw her, and just chose her. Wasn't following her, just chose this person. Nope. Inside was her roommate who heard the gunshot and ducked behind a counter. And when she saw Richard come into the kitchen, she raised her head above the counter a little bit to like see what was going on. And he spotted her and shot her in the forehead, killing her instantly. Within an hour of this home invasion, Richard randomly pulled a 30-year-old woman out of a car um, in a park and shot her twice before just running off. On this day, the two murders and attempted third attracted tons of media coverage who eventually dubbed the curly-haired attacker with a severe bone structure and rotting teeth as the walk-in killer and the valley intruder. Ten days later at 2 a.m., he entered a home that he had actually burglarized the previous year. He found Vincent Zazara sleeping in his bed and shot him in the head. His wife, Maxine, was jolted awake by this, and Richard beat her and bound her hands while demanding to know where their valuables were. Richard searched the house for the valuables. Maxine was able to get herself free from the bindings to retrieve a shotgun from under their bed, but it wasn't loaded. Richard found her with the gun, and he just became enraged by this and shot her three times, killing her. Oh, man, that's why you keep one in the pipe, folks. Mm-hmm. Oof. He Which then, I know is super dangerous. If it's out of reach of kids. Yeah, God. yeah, exactly. He then mutilated her body by stabbing her multiple times, gouging her eyes out, and putting them in a jewelry box that he oh, took my. with him. What in the hell? Yeah, this is an actual person. This is something that like actually happened. It blows my mind. Gouge your eyeballs out. Like, I squeeze my eyes shut when I hear that. Mm-hmm. As he left, he left footprints from a pair of Avia sneakers in the flower beds outside their window. Bullets found at the scene were matched to previous attacks, so police became aware that this was the work of a serial killer. So the police took casts of those shoe prints, and this was virtually the only evidence they had at the time that could potentially link them to the serial killer. About a month and a half has passed when he strikes again on May 14, 1985. Richard breaks into the home of Bill Doy and his disabled wife, Lillian. Lillian was handicapped and stayed in her own separate bedroom. So Richard first went into Bill's room and shot him in the face, but it didn't kill him immediately, so Richard beat him until he was unconscious. Then he went into Lillian's room, bound her with thumb cuffs, which I didn't even know were a thing, but it is exactly as it sounds. It literally just binds your thumbs together. So he used those, and then he raped her and then ransacked the house for valuables. 
Lillian survived, but Bill later died at the hospital due, due to his injuries. Lillian was able to describe Richard to, to investigators, and one of the identifying factors she told them was that he had horrible teeth. Fifteen days later, on the night of May 29th, Richard was driving a stolen car when he stopped at the house of 83-year-old Mabel Bell and her disabled sister Florence Lang, who was 81. He rummaged through their kitchen before finding a hammer. He then used it to beat and bind both women and used an electrical cord to shock and torture one of them. Then he found some lipstick and drew a pentagram on Florence's thigh and then on some of the walls. The women weren't found for two whole days, and when they were found, they were alive but in a comatose state. Mabel later died from her injuries, but Florence survived. They were 83 and 81 years old. See, this is exactly why, if you haven't listened to the podcast for long enough to know, I'm not into crime, okay? <laughs> and I don't understand how you crime junkies like Kelly want to listen to this stuff. But that's great. I'm glad you guys are getting your ox off here. Let's keep going. Hold on. No, Wait I, a second. Now I have to like address that because I feel attacked. No, it's not anything. I'm just, I, I, it's like I'm adding humor. I don't okay. understand how all you crime junkies enjoy this. I enjoy a lot of the episodes, but this is just sick and twisted. This but is, this is the part of crime that you guys enjoy. So whatever. First of all, it's different not like- strokes for different folks. <laughs> It's not like we enjoy it as if we just like are driving along right. in our cars smiling like, wow, holy moly, that's crazy. Fantastic. No, I know that, but it's just. No, because I've had this conversation with multiple people who ask me what it is mm-hmm. that intrigues me or they tell me they enjoy true crime stories for this reason. And a lot of it is because we just, maybe it's because we're empathetic people and mm-hmm. we just are constantly trying to understand what makes people tick right. and just like the human condition. I think more compassionate people are more interested in true crime, not only because we are trying to understand like what's going on in these in these like right. criminals' minds, like what would make somebody do that, but also just what these other people were going through. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we find it interesting. I wouldn't say enjoy is probably the best word. But yeah, I if you're listening, either screenshot the the podcast, put it on your story, and tag Mom Mystery with why the heck you like this, <laughs> or message Kelly or message Mama Mystery because I want to hear everybody's explanation. Yeah. Anyways. All right. Well, anyway, after that, Jesus. Sheesh. Maybe I won't have you on next week. What? <laughs> just kidding. So anyway, we just finished with Mabel and Florence. So the next day, he drove that same stolen car to Burbank, California, and snuck into a 42-year-old woman's house named Carol Kyle. He held her at gunpoint and bound her and her 11-year-old son with handcuffs while he went through their house. Then he released Carol so that she could show him where the valuables were before he raped her repeatedly. While he was raping her, he repeatedly told her not to look at him and that if she did, he would cut her eyes out. When he finished, he fled after binding the mom and son back together with handcuffs. For the month of June, he laid low, but on the night of July 2nd, he struck back up again when he drove a stolen car to Arcadia, California and randomly selected the house of 75-year-old Mary Louise Cannon. She was sleeping when he entered her home, and when he found her in her bedroom, he took a lamp and beat her with the lamp until she was unconscious. Then he found a 10-inch butcher knife in her kitchen and stabbed her to death with it. Three nights later, on July 5th, he broke into a home in Sierra Madre where he found 16-year-old Whitney Bennett sleeping in her bed and beat her with a tire iron. 
He searched the kitchen for a knife, but when he didn't find one, he opted for a telephone wire to strangle her with. But something wild happened. Richard noticed that electrical sparks were shooting from the cord, and Whitney started breathing. So he believed that this was like a divine intervention and that Jesus was stepping in to stop what was going on, and it scared him. So he left, and Whitney survived the attack, although she needed a whopping 478 stitches to her scalp. Gosh. Think about, like... The scene he is leaving behind. Uh, every single one of these, if you survived it, the trauma that you'd like endure and have to think about, like post traumatic stress you'd have from it, oh it my would gosh. be insane. It's beyond just the physical trauma; it's the emotional trauma too. For years, for your whole life, like and it's everyone. I think it's many people's worst nightmare to have someone creep into your home at night. Yeah, it's your personal space. Yeah, and at night when you're asleep, like, mm-hmm. oh my god, it's a nightmare. Just absolutely horrible. And, you know, you would think maybe that divine intervention would be a turning point for him and that maybe he would stop committing crimes altogether because he stopped all of a sudden sudden during this attack, right? But you would be wrong. Two nights after attacking Whitney Bennett, he burglarized the home of 61-year-old Joyce Lucille Nelson in Monterey Park. When he broke into the home, he found her sleeping on her couch. He beat her to death using only his fists and kicked her head multiple times, which left a shoe imprint on her face. Then he left, drove around for a little bit before returning to that same neighborhood and stopping at the home of 63-year-old Sophia Dickman. He assaulted Sophia and handcuffed her while holding her at gunpoint. He attempted to rape her, stole her jewelry, and when she swore to him that he found everything of value, he made her swear to Satan before leaving. On July 20th, 1985, he purchased a machete before stealing a car and driving to Glendale, California. He stopped at the home of Leela and Maxon Needing, who were in their late 60s. He burst into their bedroom in the middle of the night and attacked them with the machete. Then he used a 22 caliber handgun to shoot them in the head. He mutilated their bodies with the machete before ransacking the house for valuables. After leaving, he quickly sold the valuables and then drove to Sun Valley. So like a lot of these crimes that he's committing don't even serve any purpose. He's just, not that, not that any crimes do, but he's literally just picking these houses at random. He has no plan when he goes in. He's just like, you know, whatever I find, I'll just, you know, figure it out when I get in there. Beating him to death, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe taking stuff, maybe not. Maybe Maybe drawing pentagrams on the wall, maybe not. Like, this is what made it so hard for people, or for investigators to profile him, because he was leaving no pattern. There was no rhyme or reason. I mean, think about that. In the same neighborhood, two houses get hit. What did this guy do for a living? Well, earlier in his life, he worked for a hotel. And then after that, he was just homeless. So where does he, he doesn't have, he literally doesn't he have He steals cars, right. No, he would steal people's cars and just drive around. I mean, this all happened in the course of a summer. So he doesn't He's live He's a drifter. Mm. No, he was just a drifter. He's breaking into places mm-hmm. and then stealing cars, then breaking, yeah. that's what he does. That's what he does. Gosh. So at approximately 4.15 that same night, he broke into the Kavananth family home. He shot the dad with a cal- I'm sorry, a 25 caliber handgun, killing him instantly. Then he repeatedly raped and beat the wife, some kid Kavananth. And I'm so sorry if I'm mispronouncing that last name. I probably am. Their eight-year-old son woke up during this attack, and Richard bound him before dragging some kid around the house, demanding that she show him where the valuables were. 
When she insisted that he had everything, he made her swear to Satan that she wasn't lying. And later, when she was questioned by authorities, she was able to tell them that Richard had horrible teeth. And so his decaying teeth were starting to become a common identifier. And at this point, they were building a general profile of the killer and described him as having bad teeth, approximately six feet tall, Hispanic, shaggy black hair, and a size 11 and a half shoe. On August 6th, Richard drove to Northridge, California, where he came upon the home of a young couple in their 20s named Chris and Virginia Peterson. He crept into their bedroom and startled Virginia. He shot her in the face with a 25 caliber semi-automatic handgun. Then he shot Chris in the neck and tried to leave when Chris attacked him. He was able to avoid two more shots before he was able to escape. And I'm talking about uh, Richard. Like, Chris was able to avoid two more shots before Richard managed to escape. Both Chris and Virginia survived their attack. I can't imagine that, getting shot in the face and surviving. I'm like, you. I'm picturing, like, your worst nightmare is somebody, from when you're a kid, is somebody breaking mm-hmm. in at night. That's, yeah. like, what everybody, dream, like, nightmares about. Right. And then to be an adult and have somebody just walk into your house and startle you, mm-hmm. like... I don't say this to sound like some gun-toting Midwestern person, mm-hmm. but, like, that is exactly why, I mean, we have multiple guns, mm-hmm. alarm systems, and everything else. Like, And, I, and I, I wish that everybody had that, if that's what you want. Like, just protection. Like, yeah. that's, And not that that makes just a protection. difference, but, like, like, there's a saying... When people say, why do you have guns all over the house? Like, we'd rather have one, need, rather need one and have it than need one and not have it, right? right? And so it may seem ridiculous to buy guns or whatever, but gosh, we get a situation like this, you freaking hope you have one nearby. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when it comes down to it and your life is depending on it, Mm -hmm. and that's the difference between surviving and not. Possibly, yeah. I'd rather have it. Gosh. And, of course, we are super careful. They're up and out of reach of the children, and they know that Locked they're not up, toys. Yeah. But like, it's just crazy. Yeah, it's, that's just what it's come to. Two nights later, on August 8th, he drove a stolen car to Diamond Bar, California, where he stopped at the home of 27-year-old Sakina Abawath and her 31-year-old husband, Elias. He crept into their bedroom and shot Elias in the head. Are all these happening at night? Yes. That's why he's the night stalker. Okay. Yeah. They're all in the middle of the night. He shot Elias in the head, which killed him instantly, and then he handcuffed his wife, Sakina, and beat her while forcing her to show him where the valuables were. Then he brutally raped her, and while he was raping her, their three-year-old son entered the room. He tied up the son and continued to rape Sakina. After he was finished and left, Sakina sent their son next door to get help. Um, I absolutely hate hearing about how children are walking into the room while this is going on, mm-hmm. but I can't help but be like a tiny bit grateful that he didn't do anything to these kids as far as like beating them or killing them. And I don't know why he didn't, but that's and, like and the only. So what I was just saying when they're sleeping, if these people are getting attacked and there's God, this is just horrible. Yeah, this is a bad one. Richard began following the media coverage of his crimes, so he left L.A. for San Francisco. On August 18th, he broke into the home of Peter and Barbara Pan. He shot Peter in the temple, which killed him instantly. Then he beat and sexually assaulted Barbara before shooting her in the head. At the crime scene, he used some of Barbara's lipstick to draw a pentagram on the wall with the phrase, quote, Jack the Knife. So I don't even know what that means. It was... 
It was at this time that the ballistics and shoe print evidence from past crime scenes were matched with the crimes he committed in San Francisco. So the mayor of San Francisco, Diane Feinstein, revealed this information during a press conference, which infuriated detect detectives because they knew that Richard was probably keeping an eye on the media, which he was, and this would give him the chance to get rid of his gun and the shoes he'd been wearing, and he did just that. He took his gun no. and his shoes and dropped them off the edge of the Golden Gate Bridge. So I, I take it they were found then. Well, no, this is what he admitted later oh, on. Okay. And, you know, this is why sometimes it can be frustrating, especially, like, as the family of a victim. Like, why aren't you talking about it more? Why aren't you releasing more details? Someone might know something. And there's always, like, a rhyme or reason behind why some details get released and some don't because you want to see if someone was involved, they might have a detail that, like, only the person there would know. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I get it. But, man, she really, she really fucked up. So on August 24th, Richard drove 76 miles in a stolen orange Toyota to Mission Viejo. On this night, Richard came upon the home of James Romero Jr. His son, James Romero III, heard footsteps outside, so he went to wake up his parents and let him know, which scared Richard off. But James ran outside and noted the color, make, and model of the car he was in, as well as a partial license plate number, and called the police. And at this time, he had no idea that it was the Night Stalker. He just assumed it was like some kind of thief. So then that night, Richard broke into the house of 30-year-old Bill Carnes and his fiancée, Inez Erickson. He crept into their home through a back door and found their bedroom where they both laid sleeping. Richard woke Bill and shot him three times in the head with a 25 caliber handgun before turning to Inez. He told her that he was the Night Stalker and forced her to declare her love for Satan as he beat her with his fists. Then he went to their closet and pulled out some neckties to bind her. Once he had her time tied up, he rummaged through their home looking for valuables, and after he was done searching, he dragged Inez to another room to rape her. He told her to tell them, quote, the Night Stalker was here, and then he left. So now he's soaking up the media. Yeah. Once he left, she got up and was able to untie herself before she ran to a neighbor's house for help. Miraculously, her husband Bill was taken to the hospital where they removed the bullets from his head, and he survived his injuries. Three shots to the head. That's insane. Insane. Mm -hmm. insane. Inez was, was able to give a detailed description of Richard to investigators, and they were able to obtain a footprint from the crime scene. The stolen car was found a few days later, and police were able to obtain a single fingerprint from the rearview mirror. Richard always did a meticulous job wiping down the cars he'd stolen in an effort to conceal his identity, but in this case, he missed this one fingerprint, and when police ran it, they finally were able to identify the Night Stalker to the media. At a police conference, they announced, quote, we know who you are, and soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide, end quote. Now, you would think that this was like a climactic end to this story, but his capture was not quite the story of like incredible police work. In fact, it's kind of laughable what happens next. On August 30th, Richard took a bus visit. I'm sorry. He took a bus to visit his brother in Tucson, Arizona. He was completely unaware that police had identified him or that his face was being published all over the media. He never ended up meeting his brother and returned to LA early the next morning. 
he reportedly walked right past police officers who were there staking out the terminals in hopes of catching him trying to flee. He walked right past them. He walked then past a group of old ladies who were speaking in Spanish, and he overheard them call him El Matador, or quote, the killer in Spanish. Yeah. It was at that moment he looked around and saw a newspaper with his mugshot on the front page, and he fled in a panic. He ran across the Santa Ana freeway, tried to carjack a woman, but was chased by civilians. He hopped over several fences, tried carjacking two more vehicles, and finally one of the civilians that was chasing him struck him over the head with a metal bar, and then a group of residents got him subdued and beat the shit out of him before police finally arrived and took him into custody. Good for them. So it was a citizen's arrest that ended up actually capturing him. Good for them. The trial was a circus. The first day that Richard arrived, he displayed his hand with a pentagram drawn on it, yelling, Hail Satan. The LA Times reported that some of the jail employees overheard Richard saying he was going to smuggle a gun into the courtroom and shoot the prosecutor. So ultimately, a metal detector was installed outside the courtroom, and intensive searches were performed on everyone who entered. At one point during the trial, one of the jurors was found dead of a gunshot wound in her apartment. Initially, everyone thought Richard had something to do with this, but it was ultimately found that her boyfriend was the one who killed her, and he ended up committing suicide with that same gun in a nearby hotel. Needless to say, though, the replacement juror was terrified and was too afraid to even stay at her own home. What year is this going on? 1990? 91? So this was uh, 1989. I knew that's when it started. I didn't know when. No, no, no. His crimes all occurred in 1985. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, they started like at the end of 84, but they really like took up, you know, picked up the pace in 85. Um, But it was on September 20th of 1989 that he was convicted on 43 charges, including 13 counts of murder, five counts of attempted murder, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. He was sentenced to die in the gas chamber, and when he was sentenced, his response was, quote, big deal. Death was always, I'm sorry, death always went with the territory. See you soon, Disneyland, end quote. However, he appealed his conviction multiple times, and um, he actually did this for years until he ultimately died from complications of B-cell lymphoma on June 7th of 2013. He was 53 years old and had spent 23 years on death row. He even got married while he was locked up. What? Yeah, some chick. You know, he got all these love letters. Because, like, aside from his teeth, I guess when his mouth was closed, people found him attractive. He got love letters when he was locked up? Tons. Got tons. Of, no Because people are fucking crazy. Yes. Like, I mean, you hear about women having, like, severe, you know, issues and going for, like, bad guys. Some girls just get turned on by, like, the bad boys, and the badder the better. And so some of them wrote to the Night Stalker, and one of them actually married him and then divorced him when they found out in 2009 about the nine-year-old girl that he had killed. Because he never admitted to that. They found DNA evidence and linked him to it in 2009, even though but it happened way back in But she knew about all the other deaths. She knew about all the other That's ones, That's where though. she drew the line. But she drew the line at the nine-year-old. Oh, my goodness. Freaking weirdo. Weirdo. Anyway. That's insane. So that. there's going to be a documentary coming out about this on the 13th. That's correct. January 13th. Um, it, it appears to be a docu-series that's going to be on Netflix, and it'll probably have a lot more details. I try to keep these kind of short and sweet, so I want to keep them around 30 minutes, so I just kind of told you just the basic facts, and I'm sure this docu-series will go more in-depth, but... 
That's insane. Really upsetting. Really upsetting. So we will see you again on Friday for Freaky Friday. I'll try to make this one a little bit lighter. Maybe I can find a stupid crime story because I feel like the past couple ones we've done have been like really serious and vulgar. Yeah. Yeah. And like kind of nightmare inducing. I mean, I can handle it, but I know you can't. So Uh, if you liked this, share it with a friend, guys. Do your thing. Until next week. Mystery out. Bye. Thank you.